if you're a conservative who claims to care about boys and men, you should be really worried about poverty and inequality. But if you're a liberal who claims to care about inequality and poverty, you should really worry about boys and men. <laughs> Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In 1972, Congress passed landmark legislation to promote gender equality in higher education, known as Title IX. At the time, there was a 13-point gap in the proportion of bachelor's degrees going to men compared to women. In 2019, the gender gap in bachelor's degrees was 15 points, even wider than in 1972. But now, and it might surprise you to hear this, it's men who are being left behind. In fact, over the last several years, there's been a growing concern about the struggles of boys and men in primary education, in college, in the workforce, the impact they have on our politics and culture. And we have to break free from zero-sum thinking if we're going to address the problems facing boys and men and still work to solve the problems facing women and girls. So today we're going to dive into all of this with Richard Reeves, who is the author of an excellent new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard is a senior fellow in economic studies and the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead Chair at the Brookings Institution. He's the director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative and the co-director of the Center on Children and Families at Brookings. He's a contributor to The Atlantic, National Affairs, Democracy Journal, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Richard is the former director of Demos, the London-based political think tank, and holds a PhD from the University of Warwick. In addition to Boys and Men, his research focuses on inequality and social mobility. Richard, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Politicology. Great. Thank you so much for having me on, Ron. So before we begin, uh, perhaps you can share a bit more of your potted bio and any salient pieces of your background I might have neglected to mention so our listeners have a better sense of your approach vector for this topic. Sure. So I've basically bounced around between the think tank world, the world of journalism, and the world of government. So my most recent government role in the UK, I moved to, moved to the US in 2012. I have an American wife, for those who are wondering what brought me here. Um, and before that, I'd actually worked as director of strategy to the deputy prime minister in the coalition government. So that was Nick Clegg, which was fascinating, actually. The coalition was a was an interesting kind of experience uh, of government at the time. Before that, as you mentioned, I'd been at Demos and various other similar roles. But the through line has always been looking at the barriers to flourishing, mobility, autonomy, however you want to define it, that might lie in front of people by virtue of their class position, what race they are, or gender, and so on. And so underpinning all of it has been this desire to sort of identify what are the impediments to flourishing and then see what public policy can do to try and reduce those impediments, especially when they're falling disproportionately on one, one group of people. So my work has historically been mostly focused around class and intergenerational mobility since moving to the US, much more on race as well, because race interacts with mobility in a very different way in the US. But then that that led me, uh, as well as being a father of three boys, who I've raised now to their 20s, that led me to this sort of unexpected place, which is just these sharp data points, one of which you mentioned in the intro. But there are a number which just show that we have to think about gender gaps in a wholly new way now, because so many of them are running the, the opposite way to the way we historically think about it. Yeah, that's a terrific segue. I want to dive into the specifics as we go along, because the book is 
full of details and and really excellent excellent research. But from a thirty thousand foot view, can you give us a sense of what the challenges facing boys and men are? Yeah, so I'll actually start in some ways at the end and a sort of tragic end, which is the way in which men are particularly like to be victims of what have been called deaths of despair. That's a phrase popularized by Angus Deaton and Anne Case in their, in their work, and that includes opioid deaths, which are about three quarters accounted for by men, and includes alcohol-related illnesses, and it includes suicide. And suicide uh, deaths by suicide are four times higher for men than they are for women or for boys than for girls. They've risen by about 25% in the last couple of decades for men in the US. And they rose very rapidly, actually, between 2020 and 2021 for men, but not for for women. And one of the things that struck me looking at that data of this, and that's pretty true, that's true, the levels differ, but the ratio is similar kind of pretty much everywhere in the world. I came across some work by an Australian researcher, Fiona Shand, who looked at the words that men use to describe themselves before suicide. And the two most commonly used words of self-description by these men were useless and worthless. And for me, that's a sort of stop in the tracks moment of like, of course, that's a, you know, a, a tragically selected sample. But, but it, was this, it really made me think hard about how even beyond these statistics we're going to talk about, I think underlying all of this, the male malaise, actually is a deeper one and is about purpose and meaning and identity and belonging and neededness. I think to be unneeded or feel unneeded is a is a kind of unpersoning in a way it's sort of like and so that's sort of the end and then you mentioned the education numbers those reflect what happens much earlier in education so of the people getting the highest gpas out of us high schools two-thirds of them are girls the ones getting the lowest two-thirds of them are boys most american men earn less today than they did in 1979 that's quite an extraordinary fact when you think about it for a moment. Just at the median and below, wages have actually gone down a little bit uh, for men. And then we've seen a dramatic change in family life, uh, a move away from marriage as the default, um, huge change in the economic relationships between men and women, which I think has been a wonderful change. But one of the, ins- one of the consequences of that has been to leave a lot of fathers essentially benched. They don't really know what their role is. The law hasn't caught up. And so, again, one of these facts that you you don't just trip over or stumble over but run into hard with your shin leaving a big bruise was the one that I discovered that within six years of their parents separating a third of American kids never see their father again and I just I you can't I think take all of these statistics in and not be affected by them the, the British philosopher Bertrand Russell said the mark of a civilized person was the ability to weep over a column of numbers and some of these numbers when you think about the lives and the stories behind them they actually should make us weep yeah you know I uh, this is a political podcast of course but I, I actually want to save the politics of this issue to the end of our conversation but um, before we start digging into some more of the details, what's the risk here if mainstream culture doesn't reckon with these challenges? The risk is that some of these trends continue, and I think they've been around long enough now when you look at things like labor force participation, rates of suicide, educational trends. This is not new. This has been, this has been building now for at least a couple of decades. 
and I don't see they're not fixing themselves. Right? So there may have been a sense for a while. It's like okay, so there's an adjustment problem for men and boys, but but once we're through that adjustment, it'll be okay. I just don't see the lines getting better. So I think they'll get worse. And the and this does bring us a little bit to politics, but perhaps more towards culture. I fear that if we don't act relatively soon to arrest some of these trends, just see a growing, growing, a growing proportion of men and boys who feel lost. And that's dangerous for our for society, but ultimately I think for our politics too. Yeah. You you recently wrote about how the rise in male suicide has gone unreported by the CDC, um, which puzzled me. Um, it's been widely underreported in the media. Uh, I think you discussed this with Ezra Klein on his podcast also. Um, boys and men are four times more likely to commit suicide. Um, yes. Being male is the biggest risk factor in, in committing suicide. But when the CDC reports on groups who are at greater risk, there is no mention of men and boys. So why why is that, if we know? And what's the broader impact of, at at best, missing or at worst ignoring problems that are hitting uh, boys and men hardest so the, the first point is that it's absolutely true that it's just it's not it, it is it to be clear it is reported by the cdc these but in the tables that you have to work quite hard to get to but it's not recognized as a disparity in suicide so when the cdc does work on disparities in suicide there are many other categories that they mention including veterans lgbtq rural versus urban they talk about native american indigenous peoples and but they just just don't talk about this one as to why i don't know the best i've been able to do from the people i've spoken to is just honestly a sense of the this is a political decision but there's a fear from some folks at the cdc at least that making those decisions that simply acknowledging the problems of boys and men is to somehow diminish the ongoing concerns for women and girls. It is exactly the problem you identified at the top of the conversation, which is that there's zero sum thinking going on here. And, and I, they falsely believe that acknowledging the problem somehow will give more fuel to the people who are talking about this from yeah, an irresponsible yeah. perspective. And I think that's completely the opposite of the truth. I think that failing to mention it gives fuel to the people who say, they don't care about boys and men. It's really hard to counter that claim. And so that's really, I think, that the, the implication of this is there's a straightforward risk, which is if policymakers don't know mm. that the single biggest risk factor for suicide is being male, right? If school administrators don't know that, if psychologists don't know that, if, yeah. if people deploying dollars to suicide prevention programs don't know that, there's a danger of just a really bad misallocation of resources in terms of where the actual risk is. But there's a deeper challenge which i'm sure we'll get to which is the way that this fuels a sense among many boys and men and the people who are they're listening to which is that they they being the establishment don't care about us us being boys and men and that's a very dangerous thought to take hold you know you go out of your way very early in the book Uh, in fact on the first page of the preface (laughs) you highlight that there's a, a false dichotomy between talking about the challenges that boys and men face and the challenges that women and girls are facing. Can you explain why these aren't actually opposed to each other? Because I can imagine our listeners um, are conditioned to thinking about women and girls as being uh, as being particularly disadvantaged and where all of our focus ought to be. Can you explain why uh, why these aren't opposed to each other? Well, in, in, most of the things we're talking about, they're, they're not... They're not zero sum. They, you know, we just 
we don't need boys to sort of struggle educationally for girls to do better. We don't need male wages to go down in order for female wages to go up. By, by and large, these are not zero sum. I think it's important to recognize where they are, which is typically at the apex of society where, you know, for example, if we want to do better than 25% of our members of Congress being women, which by God we should, that will mean fewer men. Right? If you have more women in cabinet, that does mean fewer men. So I think it's important to acknowledge that in those situations, it is zero sum. And in those situations, it's perfectly appropriate to really pushing for much, much greater representation of women and girls. And at the top of society, there is still quite a lot to do, especially in political life. And I've, I've written about this for Brookings as well, um, to increase what do, can we do to increase the shockingly low share of women in US politics <laughs> compared to other countries, You know, it, where I, I've just come back from the UK, and that's where I'm from. But it's the UK Parliament is now a third female, up from 5% when Thatcher became Prime Minister. So they're from, And actually only one political party in the UK is now majority male, which is the Conservative Party. I mean, the change just in the space of a few decades has been great, and the US is not doing so well on that. But generally speaking, not only are they not opposed to each other for women, men's uh, economic or social prospects, but they, they go together. I mean, you don't have to you know, go to a middle class woman and ask her if she wants her husband to do better or, and her sons to flourish. And she'll say, sure. And them not them struggling is not good for her. It's not good for the family finances. It's not good for her concerns about her boys at school. And so in the real world, people don't see it as a zero sum game at all. They absolutely recognize that we rise together. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Well, one of the more striking statistics in the book is that uh, the gap in college degree attainment is higher now than it was before Title IX was passed, but now it's the other way around. It's mm -hmm. Now it's in favor of women. Can you lay out the gap in educational outcomes uh, between boys and girls in K-12 education and higher ed? Yeah, so it's all the way through. So if you look at just right at the beginning, the, uh, the again, the, sink, the variable that has most impact on whether you'll be, quote, school ready on a on a series of measures is is your sex is whether you're male or female controlling for other factors but it's bigger than race it's bigger than it's bigger than income it's uh bigger than whether you went to a preschool and so it's just this huge about 12 12 to 14 percentage point gap in school readiness and then that goes all the way through school certainly in middle school we see a huge gap opening up in the typical school district in the u.s now girls are almost a grade level ahead in english and it's dead even in math in the poorer school districts, are they, the English gap's a bit wider and, the, and the girls are about a third, between a quarter and a third of a grade level head in math. Um, across OECD countries, you get the same story. So this is not just a US phenomenon, right. which is important, I think, to pointing to the fact that there's something structural going on here. And then by the end of high school, you really do see these quite big gaps open up in GPA, not in standardized tests. So if you, if you rank high school GPAs from lowest to highest into deciles, into 10, 10 percentage point slices of the population. Two thirds of the top 10% are girls and two thirds of the bottom 10% are boys with a pretty linear relationship in between them. There isn't really a gap on SAT or ACT anymore. Girls are ahead in math, in terms, certainly in terms of GPA. And one of the results of that, by the way, is that if colleges go test optional, so this is a bit wonky, but many people are probably interested in this, when colleges decide, well, we don't need you to put in your test results, the main effect of that is to significantly increase the share of female students by about four percentage, four percentage points. Very little effect on any wow. other demographic. But if a college goes test optional, 
it's about a four percentage point jump. Now, of course, it's already predominantly female or up to almost 60% women, but going test optional has that, has that very big effect on widening the gender gap still further, which makes perfect sense when girls are just handing it to boys in terms of GPA. The only area of education where boys are holding their own is in standardized tests. Yeah. I was really struck by the differences in outcomes uh, for men and women in programs designed to increase uh, higher education completion rates. And um, to characterize them, broadly speaking, these programs seem like they're between somewhat and very effective at helping women achieve degrees, but not really at all helpful for men. And so I wonder what was even, you know, uh, like, how do we figure out why they're not helping men? Uh, we don't really, we don't seem to really know why they aren't working for men. So what do you, how are we supposed to go about that? No, we don't. Well, I think the first thing to say, it's good to know that they don't. And one of the things I was really struck by, I mean, one of the first ones was the the Kalamazoo Promise, which is a free college program for kids who graduate from Kalamazoo high schools. And it had a massive effect on female college completion, like over 50% increase and zero effect on male college completion. It's one of the most generous free college programs in the US and the only one that's been decently evaluated, by the way. And it had this huge effect. So I started looking at that and then I started looking around and finding a whole bunch of other programs where there was a similar story. And um, and then I started talking to the scholars who did the work, and, they, and I kept coming across this sentence, this well-known effect that, of a gender gap in the interventions. And I was like, well, I didn't know. How well-known was it really? And it turns <laughs> yeah. out, they yeah. mean, among the seven people that do this research, I could have literally walked around <laughs> Brookings saying to my colleagues, did you know? No. Did you know? No. Did you know? No. Okay, fine. So when you say well-known, um, what they mean is literally in that tiny group of scholars, but it is, it turns out like a mentoring program in community college, even actually in the labor market, a, a wage top-up program in New York, I kept stumbling across these studies that just found this bigger effect for women than for men. And one that couldn't be explained away statistically. There was nothing in the data that allowed you to say, well, okay, the guys just weren't as ready. Their GPAs were lower, or whatever, even when you controlled for all that. And so it turns out it's something much deeper than that. It's something cultural. It's something about motivation or aspiration or planfulness, future orientation. It's just something else. It's not, yeah. it's not reducible to the observable characteristics. There's something unobservable going on. But I think mm. that means it's even more interesting and arguably even more yeah. important to understand that. Yeah. Are you, are you aware of any studies or efforts uh, or experiments designed to try and, to try and get get to the bottom of that? Well, the people who did the evaluation of the Kalamazoo Promise, led by the Upjohn Institute, are now digging quite deeply into it. And they're seeing interesting differences by background. So they are seeing better results, for example, for black boys uh, and men uh, than for some other groups. So there's a racial, there might be a racial element to it too. But they're now doing qualitative work. They're actually now just doing what I did, which is go to Kalamazoo and talk to the guys and say what's going on um, to try and understand it. And I don't think there are any results in yet, but what I'm hearing from them and from other people who are thoughtful about this is that it does seem to be a motivation gap. You know, mm. even like if you've got one group that are just more motivated than another group, and then you add this intervention, which is designed to help them. Well, the group who are already motivated sees that additional help and, it ha- yeah. and it's useful. But if they're not very motivated in the first place, because typically these are, these are voluntary programs after all. Right. So, right. Uh, you know, and then and that seems to be borne out by other data too, which is just a much higher rate of a much higher motivation level among young women when it comes to education. Moving on to um, to the work domain, um, can you talk about how the changes in the economy have impacted men in the workforce? 
And so a simple story here is just that a series of trends in the economy have disproportionately hit men and especially working class men. And these, this is not exactly breaking news, but deindustrialization, especially caused by more trade and by especially the China shock joining the WTO and automation, they've just, they've just hit men's jobs, traditionally male jobs more than women's jobs. And so there's been this series of external effects, if you like, that have just hit male employment harder. At the same time, your women have been doing much better. Uh, you've seen a, a big increase in women's employment rates and in, in women's wages. And then for both of them, both men and women, a really big increase in wage inequality. And so I think a big part of the untold story here is that even as we've narrowed the gender gap in pay quite significantly and in employment, we've widened the class gap very, very significantly. And so what we're seeing is that kind of women at the top doing really well, men at the top doing really pretty well as two, and then they're forming households together, women in the middle doing better, men in the middle not doing very well, and women and men at the bottom not doing great. And so when you compound all that into sort of households and communities, what we're seeing is really this kind of huge class fracturing. And again, I think that's part of the problem that people, perhaps those, especially in elite circles, have with this conversation, because if they're only looking around at the top, like, well, I don't see men, you know, in huge trouble. And I, don't, I still see places where we need more women because they're just looking at the top of society. But, and by top, we're but, talking about the top of corporations, right? Yeah, top but of also, I think, but the, the top of the labor market. I mean, it's like the, on, the only men who've, who are better off today than men were in 79 are the ones in, say, the top third of the distribution. They're better off. We're better off than men were at, than men at the top of the distribution were 40 years ago. At but that time. all the other men are worse off than men were. And if you entered the labor market in the 1980s, you're going to earn quite a lot less, as a man, a lot less at the median than a man who entered in the 1960s. So this is really, in the economy, it's really a very specifically kind of median and below problem, really kind of bottom 60% where we're seeing these kind of very troubling trends. And then, of course, a big drop in labor force participation. Among men with their high school education, this is just a couple of data points on this. If you've got a high school education but not a college degree, among those men now, about a third are out of the labor market altogether. That's about 10 million men. You know, these are big numbers. Uh, and so we're seeing a, a significant share of men who are either earning less and or working less in a, in a, 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 in a, I would say, a bit of a vicious circle downwards. Can you talk about the family front a bit? Um, I didn't want to spend a ton of time here, but it does occur to me, um, especially as we characterize men as having lost quite a lot over the last couple of decades. One of the things they've lost is that is the is the traditional role in the family. There are a lot of factors, I think, that contribute to that. But do you want to see explain how you how you see that uh, problem? Yes, I mean just it's just anecdotally on my you know my parents. So I'm in my mid fifties. My parents are in their late 70s. And um, when, you know, they had a very clear division of labor, my father knew that he was going to be the breadwinner when he was made unemployed. His job was, as he told me, I've still got a job to get another job. There wasn't any question. They would sort of juggle it between them. My mom did work part time as a nurse, but but we, they knew they had a clear division of labor. And my father had a very clear role, which was to be the provider, economic provider. And back in those days, the gap, the gender gap in economic resources was so huge <laughs> that was built you know, absolutely built into the economic relationships between men and women and one consequence of the economic rise of women has been to put this big question mark next to the role of men so in 1979 this is u.s data now in 1979 13 percent of women 
earned more than the median man, so the typical man in the middle, 13%. Today, 40% of women earn more than the median man. Now, 40% is not 50%, which is what you would get under conditions of absolute growth, but 40% is a lot more than 13%. I mean, 40% of breadwinners are women now. A third of wives earn more than their husbands, up, you know, tripling from a few decades ago. So we have fundamentally changed the economic relationship between men and women, and therefore between mothers and fathers. Great. But the conservatives were right to say, well, wait, hold on. What, what, what about the men? What does that mean for the role of fathers? What does it mean for the role of providers? And that the conservatives said, social conservatives said, if women get economic independence, we're going to be in big trouble because the men won't have anything to do and they'll become marauding Mad Max style antisocial creatures. It will be very bad for society, very bad for crime, et cetera. None of that's happened in the same way, by the way. Actually, the men have retreated. They're, they're, they're checking out rather than acting out, I think. But nonetheless, this question of, what about the men then is one yeah, that we is, was, is a perfectly good question, right? Just because it's a great social change that women don't need men anymore right. doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask ourselves, well, wait, what's going to happen to a world where women don't need men? Uh, earlier on, you talked about the, the racial element of the story. So I want to talk about this term intersectionality which is getting thrown around a lot recently. And it's a topic that you cover in the book. Can you lay out what that term means uh, and, and how you use it? Because I think there's a lot of confusion about it and how gender and race and class all impact outcomes in schools and prospects in the job market, et cetera. The, the way I understand intersectionality, it's Kimberly Crenshaw's work, um, is that in order to understand the the barriers that people might face towards their own advancement or towards opportunities. We have to understand the multiple identities that they might have and how those intersect with each other. So for example, you might be black or white, woman, male, gay, straight, poor, rich, etc. And to look at how those intersections affect you. Um, and I think that is true and very useful, actually, a very useful way to look at how these, because they will interact and intersect in different ways, in different places and at different times. And so it's a more dynamic way, I think, of looking at inequality than just a, a static model. The problem is that the, the proponents of, of intersectionality, I think, misapply their own theory, including Kimberly Crenshaw, because what they will do is they'll say it's going to, you know, it becomes an empirical question as to how these things intersect. But what they actually then do is insist that there's a fixed hierarchy. And it essentially, it's kind of just you just stack it up. It's a stacking game, right? Um, and I think that's wrong. I think what so it's always white above black, male above female, you know, straight above gay, et cetera. And that's just obviously not true historically um, or in kind of different countries. But, but what it means is that you miss something like the, the thing I spent a whole chapter on, which is that black men and boys are worse off on most measures than black women and black girls, and not despite being men, but in many cases because they're male. So masculine being male is a disadvantage if you're black. <laughs> it's not if you're white, but it is if you're black. And that to me is intersectionality properly applied because it's saying that we're going to look at how those different identities intersect. That is not to say for the avoidance of any doubt or potential emails that I think game mission accomplished for black girls and women. Obviously, there's right, huge right. work still to do. But it is to say that if we're going to take that approach seriously, then it requires us to look at the data. And the data are pretty clear for me that on pretty much every measure, black boys and men face unique intersections of disadvantage. 
Yeah, I, I think you characterize it uh, as a double disadvantage or, or, yeah. or something to that, to that effect. Yeah, which is interse- um, which is what intersectionality means. Right, right. You know, black women, there are actually slightly more young black women now with a postgraduate degree than there are young white men, which is obviously a wonderful thing in many ways, yeah. but, it, but, but there are twice as many black women with college degrees as black men with college degrees. Mm. All these gaps we're talking about I've, my rule of thumb now is they're probably twice as big when it comes to the gender gap between black men and black women. Yeah. You use the metaphor of dandelions and orchids to talk about how, uh, generally speaking, boys and girls are able to grow in different environments. Can you walk us through those differences? So that's a term from psychology to try and get at this idea of resilience. So uh, an orchid requires quite a lot of care, watering and light and all that. I'm not a gardener, so... That's probably, I'll just stop there. Um, I, I, I neither know nor really care about how you care for orchids, but I do know that it takes a lot of work, whereas dandelions will grow pretty much anywhere, right, between the cracks in the sidewalk yeah. or whatever. So the point is simply that some people are more dandelion, some people are more orchid, which means that the same circumstances will differentially affect them, right? So lack of water will kind of kill the orchid, but it won't the dandelion. And then it turns out that if you apply that dichotomy to the influence of disadvantage on boys and girls, and particularly this is true in childhood really, that boys are more orchid and girls are more dandelion. Boys are more sensitive to pretty much every measure of disadvantage we can find in terms of how it affects their own outcomes. So poverty, neighborhood poverty, poor school quality, family instability, et cetera, all of those things, even even foster care, disproportionately affect boys they they hurt boys more than they hurt girls of course they hurt both but they seem to hurt boys more interesting so that creates an interesting There's, dynamic because it's a, then it becomes intergenerational yeah. it becomes intergenerational and again it's a little bit counter maybe some of the stereotypes we have about gender right you know that boys will be yes. fine they're, they're exactly. just you know, boys are just, yes. it's the girls that need nurturing and you know caring for it so it turns out that to the extent there's a difference it runs exactly the other way which means, by the way, that if you are a if you're a conservative who claims to care about boys and men, you should be really worried about poverty and inequality. But if you're a liberal who claims to care about inequality and poverty, you should really worry about boys and men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, see, you're dropping all these breadcrumbs toward a political conversation that I that I really <laughs> want to have, and we'll we'll get to that okay. piece. But uh, I'm I'm resisting well, the urge to dig. Well, into you're in that. my safe space at the <laughs> moment, so I'm happy to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this leads me um, to, to to sort of systems versus individuals, and you write about uh, how how even among people on the political left who are generally more likely to see inequality based on social structures, right, and the issues that boys and men are facing. Uh, are seen as individual. And I wonder, how does recognizing structural issues change the way we can think about these problems and who is responsible for contributing to solutions? And what do you make of the, the, the sort of dissonance uh, in, the, in, in the way they are seen, um, one, as, one as being responsible, uh, social structures being responsible, and the other, it's all down to the individual? Yes, it's, this is actually quite a big motivation for my work in this space. Because what I, one of the things I noticed was that the tendency of those on the on the left, especially to to look towards structural problems, it could be structural racism, structural sexism, but essentially to look for structures in society that account for differences in outcome. 
uh, and obviously historically those on the on the political right have tended to focus more on on the individual and say that it's more about individual responsibility and that's a perfectly good and robust and useful disagreement in my view um, yeah. because i think you, the, both of those perspectives are useful and that debate is often very fruitful very. if it's had in good faith Abs- if it's had in good faith absolutely um yeah. Because it's obviously going to be some sort of some combination of the two in in different in different ways and for different people, and so looking at kind of the where's the weight of both um, is actually very helpful. And I, but I think it's it's a useful instinct to to look for structural causes of group based differences in outcome. Uh, and so when I look at some of the some of the statistics we just talked about around education, for example, I think it's useful to say not what's wrong with the boys that they're doing so badly at school, but say, what's wrong with schools that mm. so many boys are doing so badly in them? Um, now, it might turn out that the answer is nothing, right? But it, at the very least, that's not what I think the answer is, by the way. I think there's quite a lot wrong with schools that means they don't work well for boys. But at the very least, you should ask the question. But they don't. the, the folks on the left don't actually apply that to boys and men. They take an individualistic approach. And so the problems with boys and men typically are framed as problems of boys and men. Mm. And so it's, you know, we have to solve this problem one individual at a time. And I have to tell you, just as a, a just on a quite personal level, one of the things I've been really struck by is how many parents and young men and boys have been in contact with me just saying, thank you for making me realize I'm not the only one or we're not alone, you know, there's not something wrong with us or with me, right? There could be something else going on here because the message has just been like, what's wrong with me? And in the case of the left, it could yeah. be that you're too toxic or you're too aggressive or you're, yeah. you know, you're just too, la- you're too lazy, you don't try hard enough, et cetera, whatever, whatever you want to take. On the right, the problem has been framed as you're not masculine enough. You need to be kind of more manly. And so I, the way I characterize this is that the left are telling boys and men to be more like their sister and the right are telling boys and men to be more like their father and neither of those are very useful invocations in the world we are in right now. <laughs> and so they end up kind of a bit lost. But but I just, I mean, it comes back to some of these other issues around healthcare and even COVID deaths or whatever thing you want to choose is that I think it's very useful to look for structural causes. Uh, and not stop there, of course, but at least start with that right. question. Right. Uh, can we talk about biology for a moment? A nice uncontroversial topic. A n- nice space. uncontroversial. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a perfect segue <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you highlight that voices from the left and from the right weigh biological differences in males and females incorrectly. Um, can you lay out what those biological differences are, why they're important, and how they should be properly weighted in your view? Yeah, well, I want to make one important distinction, which is between the way, the timing of development of boys and girls and the end result. And so the biggest difference that I think has consequences for education policy in particular is that boys develop later than girls. Boys' brains grow later than girls' brains, especially in particular ways, which we might get into about around the prefrontal cortex, the bit of your brain that helps you have future orientation, et cetera. And that, that develops about a year or two later in boys, especially in puberty, than girls. And so a 15-year-old boy is not the neurological equivalent of a 15-year-old girl. She's way ahead of him. And again, it's like a well-duh yeah. well 
<laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. I guess everybody has got kids. Right. <laughs> like, or it's been a kid or been at school or been a teacher, right? Um, everybody who's ever been through that. <laughs> exactly. Anybody that's ever gone into a ninth grade class and asked everyone to open up their book bags uh, <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. And so this is not that bit's, and it's completely uncontroversial, that bit, by the way. What's more controversial mm-hmm. is the differences between uh, men and women that endure and that actually might explain things like occupational choices or preferences towards caring for children, appetite for risk, et cetera. Uh, and that's more controversial. And what happens is that in most of the, for most of those differences, what we have is a bimodal distribution, right? You have a, you have a nice wonky audience. I can talk about overlapping yeah. distributions, um, which yes. means that they're different, but they overlap. Um, and once we get that in our head, the question becomes, well, how much do they overlap? And does it matter for anything? Right, right, right. right. But, but there's such a fear of this on the left that there's a tendency to say all of these differences are socialized, right, between boys and girls and men and women. And that is batshit crazy to be technical about it. I mean, that's just obviously yeah. not true. It's not all socialized. There are some differences between us that are not socialized. Right. This is the, this is nature versus nurture, and how do we weigh them both? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. so the left will kind of say it's all basically. I'm I'm caricaturing a little bit. What they usually sure. they're thoughtful enough to say, of course, nature plays some role, but it's tiny. And now I'm only going to talk about nurture. And what those on the right will do is they'll say, of course, nurture plays some role, but it's mostly nature. So I'm only going to talk about nature rather than talking about the ways that they balance each other out and co-evolve. But it is clearly true that there are some differences. So then can you uh, maybe briefly explain the consequences of, on the one hand, the left underweighting those biological differences, and then on the other, the right overweighting them? Sure. So let me take a reasonably safe example, which is uh, occupational segregation, occupational choice. So what um, the left will say is that there are no differences between men and women that could explain why women would be less likely to be engineers and men would be more likely to be nurses, say, or fighter pilots or whatever you want to choose. Um, And so we have to get to 50-50 in everything. Anything less short of 50-50 can only be the result of, of nurture, of culture, of sexism in one kind or another. Uh, And that's not true. But the right will then say, of course, women can't be engineers. Their brains don't work that way. Or, of course, men can't be nurses. Their brains don't work that way. But the truth is something much more boring, which is under conditions under which, and here I'm actually just citing the work of a couple of psychologists, Rong, Sue, and James Rounds, who take the differences between men and women on average in their interests in what is called by psychologists the people-things dimension. Men are a bit Mm. more into things. Women are a bit more into people. That's true, but what it would mean is that if that was being expressed pretty freely in the labor market, about 30% of engineers would be women and about 30% of nurses would be men. Now, that's not 50%. So sorry, left, sorry, everything socialization (laughs) left, but like, and and actually interestingly, in the Scandinavian countries, there are fewer women going into STEM now. (laughs) Um, So the more, it turns out the closer you get to gender equality, the fewer that actually see a dropping off of the women going into STEM. which is really hard to explain, I think, other than it, that's actually a choice, right? I don't, you know, I don't think it can be, right. it can't be that Sweden's still su- in the grip of such right. a deep patriarchy that women feel they can't be engineers. Um, but it's also a lot more than, so it's, it's 30% twice, but twi- it's twice what we are at now, 
right? And so it's not right. as if you can explain the current level of female representation in engineering or male in nursing by biology. And there's a lot of people on the right who would say that if anything, even that's too high. Like I've heard people like Jordan Peterson, who's obviously in this space and is a brilliant yeah. intellect among other things, but he's justified the fact that only 5% of engineers are women. His data is out of date on that by using the people things dimension, by saying, well, women's brains work differently. Mm. I'm saying, well, they do, but not 5%, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And so it's right. like, can we, so we're, in other words, we're a long way from, from recognize from saying that we're at equality, but take something like mathematics as a profession, we're at about forty percent female right. representation, and it looks like that's about where it's going to level out, just in terms of the differences in interest, and that that's okay. We need we need to be okay with that. Yeah, this is this is fascinating and a much much bigger discussion, but I think it's important. You you do cover this in the book, and and I think it's important that you know if you take anything away from this part of the conversation, nature and nurture, yes, and right, it's mm -hmm. it's it really is both. It's what everybody uh, thinks. It's what everyone thinks except ideologues, basically. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.